Thank you for joining us on the Blind Stigma Podcast. I am Dr. Natasha Williams. And I'm Stacey Buchanan. Thank you guys for joining us today. So today our guest is Dr. Andre Marseille. He is an existentialist and positive psychotherapist who is very concerned about climate change and mental wellness, which will be one of the foremost significant issues in the next 10 to 20 years. Powerhouse. I think, you know, he, I I think what's amazing with him is he's now coming, we're coming from a perspective of a professional. Yes. Um, Someone who has their PhD, who is a therapist, who's actually doing the work within the black community, but also uses his personal I was about to say in that. his professional. Yes, I was just about to say that. Um, as we talk about quotes um, for Dr. Marche? Marseille. Marseille. That name just, it just feels like, um, like it just feels like ice cream in a beautiful <laughs> way. In a beautiful way. It's, it's like, you know, when you're testing, <laughs> it's not even, it just, Listen, I know what you mean. You know what I, I know mean, what but I'm like, mean. okay. <laughs> For him, I'm I'm just thinking about a quote that I can that I can go that can go for his story, and I'll more I'll more go with point forms, and it will be finding your purpose, and 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 using that purpose to navigate your way through this world. And leaving a mark, a beautiful mark, that legacy that you want to leave onto the world. It's like you're giving back onto the world. Absolutely. I think that describes him very, very well. Yes. Um, Being able to find your purpose on that and on that continued journey in life versus um, looking at it at the end of your life. Absolutely. So Dr. Andre Marseille. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great episode. And uh, make sure you're eating some ice cream when you listen to this, okay? <laughs> and I mean it in the most respectful and honorable way. Like, this this conversation, this episode, this interview, be ready for this. Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. This podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the Black community, breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives. Why don't we get started? And the first question we have for you, Andre, is I would love for you to, and it's an open, it's more of an open question, okay? So we want us, we would love for, um, for you to tell us your story. I think that's important in, in, what I thought about saying when you requested, um, asked me to be on your show mm. and I, you know, read about it and I understood the concept of what you were hoping for folks to get at. And, and, you know, and so authentic, um, kind of stuff with me. And I, and I thought about what is, or what, what are some of the most authentic or genuine moments, deep moments in my life or, or, you know, uh, experiences that have, have, uh, sort of given my life some sort of direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came upon one. Okay. And I think it's probably the most, probably if I'm giving it, being completely honest, one of the most significant uh, moments of my life. Um, it happened over a period of actually 13, 14 months. Okay. 
um, and from seven, from from November of 2017 to um, about December of 2018. Okay. Um, and I think so. Let me give this just a little bit of context yes, before I you. get into you know what I'm saying. But during that time, or what's come out of that time, a number of things crystallized for me. Um, one is. You know, when you go through your psychology programs and mental health programs, you'll always ask this, that, that sort of fundamental core question, what is your theoretical orientation? Yes. Right? And you're expected to sort of answer, you know, what that is. And, you know, I I guess at the time when I was being asked that uh, in graduate programs, you know, um, I don't ever think I really had one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I, don't, I don't really think so. I think I was just fascinated with the field of psychology generally. Um, and probably the, the one the theoretician that I gravitated towards was Harry Stack Sullivan right. uh, in my earlier days. But nonetheless, getting back to that core idea um, of who you, what your theoretical orientation is, I really didn't know. But then I came upon my mentor, um, Dr. Clement Von Tress, who's been a practicing um, cross-cultural psychologist for over 40 years since since he's retired, obviously, but we've been friends for the last 15, 16 years. And uh, he's 90 years old, okay. a retired professor from George Washington University. And um, he's a practicing existentialist. And so getting to the question of um, my theoretical orientation, I can honestly and, and, and happily say I'm an existentialist. Okay. And how I tie that back to the, to the, um, your question and what I was, about this sort of 13, 14 years of my life that sort of changed my life. Um, it was toward the, the begin toward the it was in that space that I really realized that yes, I am actually an existentialist. That is that is the most authentic authentic thing I can say about myself. Okay. So what in the heck is these? Are these fifteen months, thirteen months, right? <laughs> That's it. Right. What is it that changed my life and 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 brought me to the space where we use get back to the word use authentic? Mm-hmm. Um, existentialism is is and to be a true existentialist is to be is to always aspire to be your most authentic self. Ah. No matter the the cause, no matter the. The, the, the circumstance, the idea is to be true to oneself. Okay. That we are endowed with certain innate capacities and that we have, and because of these capacities, we have unalienable rights to freedom and, 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 and to create meaning for ourselves. And not only do we have that ability to create meaning for ourselves in a world that is sometimes rather harsh, right. it's our burden. Freedom is our burden as well. Right. 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 And we, and so that's what it means to be an existentialist. And so where that sort of expands out into my views about myself and how I view life and existence, part of the idea of meaning in existentialism also also incorporates sort of very, very um, sort of core fundamental life themes. Okay. And what, so what do I mean by that? We talk about themes of life and death and love and connection and responsibility and accountability. These are all fundamental life themes that no matter where you go across the globe, all these things 
connect people in some shape or form. The only difference is how we express those things, right? That's right. right. And so when we talk about mental illness and, and when we talk about uh, uh, mental health challenges, um, they always, as a rule, and, and the way I view mental health, as a rule, they, mental health is always underscored by one of these life themes that we're talking about in existentialism. Right. ADHD, depression, trauma, all these things figure into some some major life thing that when we talk about psychoanalysis, we're, we're looking to get at the core that, that's right. to understand that. That's right. Well, here's... So that's what it... Yeah. That's what it means simply to be an existentialist. Right. Now, that is my orientation as a... As a, um, as a <clears throat> As a cycle, as a as a practicing mental health professional, right. in part, I'm also a little bit of a positive psychotherapist, but I'll get to that a little bit later. But here's my um, question, Andre. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you for two seconds before you keep yeah, on going. I, I can get going. I know you can keep going. <laughs> no, but, but I think my question is, and I I think what the listeners would also love to hear because. Um, you know, what we appreciate as well is, is that, you know, being a black man and being a mental health professional in, in mm-hmm. this, you know, in this field is, is very important. What I wanted to mm-hmm. just get from you as well is, um, and if you feel comfortable sharing, it sounds like part of your journey to get to the place where you could say that you are an existentialist um, has also come from your own personal journey as well. Was there... Um, things in your personal journey uh, that allowed you to get to the space where this is the reason I am an existentialist, or this is the, the this is the framework that I that I work by has been framed by things that sure. have gone on in in my personal life as well. Because a lot of times those mirror one another. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Now we're getting to the thirteen months. Ah, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> okay. Um, if I may. I know this is probably a bit of a favor, um, but it's in the spirit of being authentic. Right. So this 13 months of my life was very, very significant for me. And I'm going to explain why. Okay. But in part, I did write an academic article, an essential article about, about this experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if I may just read about a page of it. I think it would give you a good sense of sort of, um, what the 13 months was about and kind of what, what this what was all about. And, and, and uh, we Please. can sort of talk a little bit more about it from there. Please. Is that okay? Please. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, sure. Uh, so I'm opening up the file here. <laughs> yeah. I right, hear it is. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the face of my uncle and father's death, I am an existentialist. I accept that death is part of the life cycle and that life is a series of linear TikToks toward an inevitable death. I am comfortable with that. I owe this understanding to my relationship with Dr. Clement Von Tress, my mentor for over 20 years. He's a practicing existentialist. One of Dr. Von Trester's most significant points about existentialism is it is more than an orientation a therapist chooses to practice, but rather the way he or she chooses to live the life. So being an existentialist means, for me, I cannot permit receiving someone else's version of meaning, but choose 
how I find my own meaning in my father's death. Mm. Sorry, my uh, thing keeps freezing a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So, in existentialism, life is always about moving forward. Moving forward requires a constant self-examination of meaning, freedom, and personal accountability. These are relatable life principles to me. Yet I spent much of my childhood in the church, in Sunday school, in private school, as an altar boy, learning how to be a moral person, I guess. In honesty, the teachings of Catholicism and Christianity still interwoven into my consciousness. In talking about my moral compass, I have to also consider my Haitian roots as well. They tell me that I always that I should always find meaning in religion, which is deeply entrenched into Haitian tradition and customs. In fact, my uncle, before he passed, told us that my grandfather was a very well-known and prominent Haitian, quote-unquote, witch doctor once upon a time. So now, having to understand my father and uncle's passing, and looking at the, to the uh, looking at my roots of, of Christianity, but also looking at my Haitian roots, am I now to consider what it means, what my father's death means in the space of my Haitian cultural views as well? All these thoughts were at the heart of my current state of self-examination. And I was at a sort of existential crossroads where I lean on the religion and the faith of my family and culture, which says to take refuge in God's promise of eternal afterlife and peace. Or do I lean on my more existential ideas and feelings that death is a part of life and we cannot know what happens after death. Hence to explore the real meaning, what does it have for me? All this to say that in good consciousness, I find it exceptionally difficult as an authentic existentialist, an authentic being, to lean on any traditions of religion or Haitian culture to help me find meaning about my father's death solely. Ultimately, I am saying that I do not want to process my father's death from the lens of religion or any other orientation that threatens to take away any real meaning from the reality of his death. I want to deal with his death, their deaths, and in a matter that is meaningful, that is empowering and healing, it ultimately allows me to move forward with life. I want to accept their deaths as part of the life cycle because in truth and by evidence, evidence, death, it seems, death is, seems, and appears to be a major or the major transition period in life. I can be shocked and saddened by my father's death because that is a natural thing to do when in love and in emotionality. However, I do not want to be confused about his death and helpless to understand the confusion, especially since I choose to carry the burden of making meaning in my own life. Sartre in nineteen forty two once said, Man is nothing but man is nothing but which he makes of himself. So that I believe that it is my freedom, that freedom is my essence and my salvation. And I cannot lose it without ceasing to be. Anything less, and I will be running from who I am, what I believe, and most importantly, the real meaning I can glean from my father and uncle's deaths. 
And that was what makes me an existentialist. Mm. Mm. See, I, and you know what? Thank you, Andre, for that. Because I think what a lot of people don't realize, especially when you are uh, a mental health professional, um, is understanding how our personal weaves into our professional and, <laughs> and how it, it embodies who we are. Um, so a lot of times they'll, you know, they just see the, you know, Dr. Marseille, you know, the, the psychotherapist, the office, the, mm -hmm. you know, they see all of that. And th mm -hmm. what they don't understand is, is the journeys that we've had to take, mm -hmm. you know, to, to fully, to, to understand. And sometimes it's still a journey to understand who we are, um, mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily just separate, well, most of us don't anyway, just separate ourselves mm. professionally and then have a completely different personal. Because, you know, the practice of psychotherapy is such a, um, you know, such a woven relationship. It's almost impossible in a sense to not bring yourself into it. So you have, oh, to, fully, sure. you have to fully understand who you are. And, and, no, and what you I, practice I and what tell. you believe, you know? So um, I, appreci yeah. I appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of our listeners, I think, have to understand or, you know, we hope that they understand um, that, you know, mm -hmm. the us as professionals in the field and especially in our black community, we're not devoid mm -hmm. of... These, oh, yeah. We're not yeah. devoid of these personal experiences yeah. and mm -hmm. and these these crossroads where we have to figure out whom we are, what is our life's purpose, and 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 you know how do we then bring uh bring our authentic true selves to you know to the community that we're also trying to that we're also aiming to heal, yeah. aiming mm -hmm. to heal as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think when you say how do we you know the part about the, bringing our authentic selves to what we do whether that's in the private practice one-on-one within group therapy or in the community, I think that's the mandate of existentialism. Yes. You know, Jean-Paul Jean Sartre talks about, um, you know, this in his essay, um, um, uh, Humanism, Existentialism as Humanism, mm -hmm. in which he talks about, you know, um, the, the most authentic space a person can occupy is, is in, comes in two parts. The first is that uh, they have found, they have discovered, found, and found meaning in their lives. They have a very thoughtful sense of, of who they are and what they believe. Mm -hmm. The second part of that is that they act according to that. Right. Yes. And for many, many of us, you know, like my Angelo saying, you, you know, if you know better, you, you do better. For a lot of us, we know better, but sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit difficult. Right. But, but but existentialism demands sort of what you're saying. It's, it's about um, working from the inside out, uh -huh. right? And and the other key part I think about existentialism that sort of speaks to the space you're talking about in terms of authenticity is that the most uh, the most therapeutic part of uh, therapy within the existential framework is a therapeutic relationship. That's right. It's not about the tools. It's not about all this other these fancy theories and everything else. It is about the trust. This is about the feeling of humanity and connection, you know, intuitive sensibilities that really, really create the ambiance necessary for true therapeutic healing. Mm -hmm. And that is the that is the mandate of the existential therapist to create that environment and to walk with 
their clients through this process of trying to discover themselves and being uh, and feeling empowered to take 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 hold of what they discover. Right. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize how powerful the therapeutic relationship is um, because a lot of times, especially and other therapists think it's just the tools, you know, it's the, you know, you know, um, you know me well enough that I do, I do, uh, practice quite a bit of, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, but I do it from a different lens or a different perspective where it's not Mm -hmm. about the thought record per se. If if I'm just going to be throwing this, this thought record or this chart in front of your face and have to just lean on the tool, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not looking at the therapeutic relationship and that and the significant impact of that versus here's this tool and that tool and that's why you have therapists who will use manuals and say Mm -hmm. you know go to this page and that page and that page and they've completely lost the therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. for the sake of for the sake of the safety of the tools right and the safety of the tools are for the therapist they're not for the client right it gives it gives me it, it gives me comfort that i have a tool to use and that I've done yeah, something right. in therapy versus mm-hmm. t- attending to the therapeutic sure. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So this gets us the idea of authenticity in, in a different way. So uh, what I mean is, um, you know, certain uh, uh, therapists who rely on certain tools um, to sort of guide the therapy, two things are happening. One, they're not really validating the client as a person for a person right that's the that's the thing we have to be mindful of and two they are incorporating and for some not all they're incorporating clearly a defense mechanism as Ford would coin it or a security operation as Sullivan would coin it in that space to mask what their incompetency right there's a competency issue there Uh, oh absolutely absolutely right whether it's instigated by cross-cultural fears or misunderstandings or what have you, the, the point is there's an, there's, a, there's, a, there's an incompetency space there. And to mask that, to cope with that, the focus is on the, the tool or the orientation, right, mm-hmm. and not the individual. And so that sometimes can be the very dangerous because the reality of it is, who are you really helping in that space? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. I think it makes sense. Okay. Well, I'm glad I made uh, existentialism easy because, <laughs> you know, one of existentialism's uh, biggest critiques is that it's, you know, for some people in my, with my students, when I mention I'm an existentialist, they're like, is that that old death and dying abstract morbid theory that has no real strategies or what have uh. you? And it's, it, it's quite the opposite. Existentialism is essentially a doctrine of human existence. Right. The right. idea of, what it, of being in consciousness and, and will and volition and people sort of underestimate what those sort of things really mean right. for people in terms of their identity and their self-image and their self-system. And I think the other thing with people that that um, I don't think respect per se existentialism is that I think a lot of times they're looking for that one modality. That's the thing, because the thing is, if I'm comfortable enough in those tools in that one modality, then I'm doing, you know, then I'm doing the work. Um, If there's something Mm -hmm. where I don't think I can gravitate towards or grab 
or, you know, say that session one is this session two is that session three is this, you know, we talked Mm -hmm. about, we talked about competency, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and, 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 and I think and I think that a lot of times therapists want to be comfortable in that. And and I think for therapists and when we talk about how the personal and the professional go hand in hand, you know, you have to feel comfortable that you are competent. Oh, oh right? absolutely. Well, 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 a couple of things about that. In the spirit of being human, right? Right. <laughs> and humans are valuable, right? right. By, just by thought, mm-hmm. right? Whether you want to be religious about it and talk about the original sin, whatever the case may be. By by the, to be human is to be valuable. It means we're ever growing. We're uh, we're always beco- uh, uh, becoming and, and all this stuff. So in that space where you talk about the competency, I think one thing that's important to note is that, particularly for younger, uh, you know, uh, up and coming, you know. Uh, therapist, the green therapist, as I right. call them. Um, sometimes incompetency, well, not necessarily incompetency, um, well, to be on, on the harsher side of that, say incompetency, let's just say use the word incompetency. Right. Sometimes that's okay because you're, you're not, you're green. Well, that's it. Right? Hmm. That's true. You're, you're, you're novice, you're learning, you're, 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 you're messing up, you're, you know that it's you're going to be incompetent a lot of the time, probably, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think the, the, the careful line I want to draw is that you know, as, as, as your audience listens to this, this and, and those who are thinking about becoming therapists, is that you're going to mess up, you're going to be incompetent at times. It's a learning curve. But here's the thing that's important in that space: you make sure you do your due diligence, right? To read the ther- theory, to get competent to reflect on them, to see how they work for you, do not work for you, right? To have a a, a, um, um, a clinical supervisor or a mentee or somebody you can trust and you can bounce these ideas off of, right? Mm-hmm. Those are things that you do to sort of deal with the incompetency that comes naturally with being a young and upcoming therapist. Mm-hmm. I can safely say I made tons of incompetent mistakes because, uh, on my way to becoming um, a doctor uh, of counsel. Yeah, of course, you know, Um but 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 to be sidetracked by your incompetence, by your minor bouts of incompetency, to fall too much into allowing them to, to dictate how you become a therapist, that's when the problems arise. That's you know, right. like you said, for example, I'm just going to rely on the instrument, or I found uh, one orientation. I'm just sticking with that. When you get to those spaces, that's when this becomes when incompetency can become very dangerous. That's right, mm. particularly for young young counselors and therapists. Right, right. Um, Doctor Marseille, did I say it right? Yes, you did. Thank wow. You. Okay, I want to I want to ask you what the work that you do with mm-hmm. your clients in your community, where would you say that you are right now? Wow. Wait. Um, the work that I do, where would you say I am right now? From your journey uh, that you've started, what? like right now, where where? And in particular with the work that you do, um, you know, with the clients mm-hmm. coming from our, our, our community. community. Okay. What is some of the work that I do? Um, I don't. I guess I'm having a little trouble in terms of saying where. Like, what do, what are the things I do right now? Like, what are some of the things that I actually do? Or okay, let's let's break let's break it down into two questions. So the first question okay. I would say is, you know, um, 
talk a little bit about the work that you do with the uh, with uh, patients that are coming from our community, and okay. then and then part two. Then I would say would be how has it evolved since you started? There you go. How has that evolved since I started? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. As they say in our, in our community, I see you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> working with my community. First and foremost, I did my dissertation with my community. Ah. Uh, a bunch of, uh, yeah, worked with a, a number of uh, African-American young men. Uh, and what was your dissertation on, sir? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> 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 um, it was, it, the title, if I can remember it. Um, oh, boy. Dang. <laughs> uh, uh, a, pheno- a, a a phenomenological investigation of the attitudes he did paradox among a group of African American young men in urban low income communities. Oh wow! Wow! Holy smokes! <laughs> <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> so, so I mean, just, I said just to say that. So I think like I talk a little bit just about my experience with the, with the. Uh, um, with my community uh, uh, and the, the, you know, the pride and you know, the love I just really have for working with my community. Um, it started um, probably in, in undergrad uh, as a peer counselor and, you know, went to a, prominent, a prominently uh, Af- uh, African-American school for undergrad Chicago State University. And as a peer counselor, you know, you work with students on academic probation and kind of was a lot of them, for my reason. But anyway, uh, that gave me my first taste of like counseling, Okay. you know, and I think from that point on, it just really felt very natural for me. Okay. Um, in terms of once, once I moved from Chicago to DC, I've been here for about 20 years now, okay. um, the first place I worked was a charter school where I was a residential counselor and I worked with a group. Of, I lived actually with a group of, uh, of young uh, African-American men and, and, uh, in a house. Oh. My job was to teach them life skills and to help them be better just overall young men okay. and to sort of be more accountable. It was a very interesting position. Hmm. Um, but I think that's where my passion for you know, where I decided, you know what, no matter what type of therapist I'm going to be, I'm always going to work with my, with my people. All right. It was that experience living with those young men. And, and the reason why it was so profound on me and the reason why that, that was a very experience that led me to my dissertation topic. But I think the reason the, 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 the experience was so profound, it was had such a profound impact because these kids went to a, a, a charter school, public charter school in DC. Um, and, these kids had it hard. I mean, they had difficult circumstances. They came out of some of the worst circumstances. And I think there's something to be said about, I think someone mentioned the word like holistic here. But I think it's something to be said about the idea that people wear many hats, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You wear, you you know, your sister, mother, friend, uh, professional, whatever, right? Right. The danger sometimes is where we 
we we we started to pigeonhole people into one of those identities and fail to realize that they they, they have multiple they wear multiple hats right. have multiple identities and and not to sound too confusing like schizophrenia or like that I'm just saying <laughs> we we have different roles right? that's right yeah and so uh, the re the reason why I bring that up is because my experience as a residential counselor working at the school teaching life skill courses being a mental health counselor and then living with these young men um, for two years. Um, what it taught me is prior to that experience when I would do work in schools and I would work with kids from difficult backgrounds, you tend to only see them as difficult students. Right. You want to, I mean, you have empathy for them, you, you know, and patience and stuff. Cause I, 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 I grew up with some of these same type of kids, but when you just work with them in the school setting, right. And you only see them in that school setting forever, how much time you work. It's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to see them as more than just that role. Mm. But when you live with them, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, for example, when they're just in school and they're, they're difficult, they're, they're ADHD or whatever the case may be, and they're not very good, they're not uh, doing the homework, whatever, you're like, this is just not a good student. You're like, oh, my God, and your patience is very thin, and you're like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. But when you live with them, and you interact with, and you, and, you, and you stay up late nights talking about their upbringing, and you interact with their parents, and you and you have to um, intervene because somebody's about to get shot, and, and, and you had to stop and de-escalate fights, and you had to 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 use some of your own money to help you know them get out of a very difficult situation when you understand sort of the, just the structurelessness of their upbringing. Then when you relook at that role as that they are as a student, you're much more sympathetic, much more thoughtful, mm-hmm. much more understanding. And for me, that had a very profound effect on me in terms of just understanding how one that classic cliche statement: you can't judge a book by its cover. Two, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. But what's more important about that cliche statement of judging a book by its cover? You're not supposed to do that. But you know what's also important? And particularly from the from the therapeutic standpoint, you don't judge a book by its cover one, but you also gotta read the whole book. Oh, thank you, thank Ooh. you, mm. Audrey. That's a word right there. Boy. <laughs> I was about to say just that. That's a word uh-huh. right there, boy. <laughs> but it, but you know what? I I I absolutely agree with you, and I think. Um, what is profound is is that, uh, and I think where a lot of therapists make the mistake, mm-hmm. um, is is that they just they do judge the book by its cover and they don't take the time to read the book, and that's mm-hmm. where, in particular in our community, where where a lot of things fall through the cracks. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Um, now I don't want to like go too far because I know you said you had four or five questions for me. I know we got to one. Or well, we right? well no we no, we, we we mixed a couple so we're we're yeah. going we're going to question okay. we're, we're going to question four shortly. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I just want to note that while I do I do know that that experience is what the experience that allowed me to say you know uh, I'm always going to work with my community mm-hmm. um, and I also have to say though my experiences. Growing up in the house with my, my, my siblings and the emphasis on education um, that I had through my parents um, and my willingness to sort of just 
pick up and leave to go to uh, D.C. just because I felt like moving. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and since then, going to Japan and Russia and India and uh, Costa Rica and uh, Germany and all these different places where I've been called upon to present research and, and you know interact with different people and and uh, and you know what's important for me and, and, and I guess what I'm bound by ethically as a person who who says or claims to be an existentialist is that while I love my people and they they are in fact my first priority I have no um, hesitations about saying that uh, but I'm a people person. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I'm a people person. And what I've learned is that there are certain universal vaccines that apply to all of us. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist whose research interests fall under existentialism, positive psychotherapy, traditional healing and cross-culturalism and, and multiculturalism, um, I am bound to look at and understand only that people are much more human than simply otherwise. Mm-hmm. Boy, Dr. Marseille. Yes. <laughs> Dropping some nuggets boy today. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> um, so Andre. Yes, ma'am. How do you say how can we change the stigma in our community? Um, when you say stigma, what are you referring to specifically? The stigmas on how mental health is perceived. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's deconstruct a little bit of what we say stigma, so viewers can like make sh- we can make sure we're all on the same page, right? Yes. Ah, the stigma, the, st- the stigma. I would assume uh-huh. what you're referring to is that generally, um, well, you guys are in Canada. I'm, I'm in VA, so. But you never know. Go ahead. Uh, brown populations and black populations, uh, particular demographics, um, there's a hesitancy and a belittling of of the of of what mental health really is. Right. Yes. Yes. That's, um, that's truth. And I, and that and that's part of what we we refer to when we talk about the stigma. Yes. That's right. Yes. And how do we get, how do we as therapists within the field of psychology and counseling mental health help change that stigma so that brown and black populations don't gutturally, like as soon as they hear mental health, their gut says, nah, 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 right? (laughs) How do we get them to change that guttural reaction that mental health is either not for them or it's for the what? The weak. Ah, Mm. yeah, exactly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what can we do? So in your in your eyes, stigma, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that we've defined <laughs> it, Professor. Why that we call it stigma? <laughs> um, I, I think I think there's a couple of things. One is black therapists, therapists of color, have to have to be willing. Let me say that. They have to be willing to, um, that's what I'm looking for. Therapists of color have to be willing to advocate, to, to, 
to understand that psychology and mental health and all the theories that we learn, CBT, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's critical to in, to in terms of our competency. That's the word we used before, right? Right. But in our unique paradigm of psychology and mental health, in terms of black and brown people, right? Mm-hmm. We cannot separate the idea of psychology and mental health from history. Thank you. So therapists of color need to need to be able be willing to say, hey, look, I know all about Freud, Sullivan, and all TBT and all this other stuff. But if I'm willing and desiring to work with people of color, you know, for example, African Americans, it's probably behooves me to sort of it will behoove me to, to read up on these things, so to, to to understand um, that it's not just about psychology, mm-hmm. that the psychology of the African-American, oftentimes the mental health of the African-American is often interwoven with so many other things, right? Right. Institutional, you know, social, you know, institutional racism, all these various things, classism, all these other things. And we have to be, so when we talk about competency, it's sort of our mandate to be, try to be as competent as possible in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing we. So when we say how do we how do we reverse the stigma, we need to understand that that there's an intersectionality between mental health, psychology, uh, uh, social economic sta- status, race, right? We need to really understand that and not just be, I'm just a CBT, or I'm just an extension. I'm just you know we have to be be almost sort of you know. The easiest example I can say is we major in in, in our in psychology and we we have to minor in some of these other things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have to minor in some of these other things to be competent. The second part of that is uh, um, therapists of color. I'm sorry to say this. Well, I'm not sorry, but there's a, <laughs> there's sort of a lack of. This isn't fair, but it's what it is, right? And that is. You also must understand a little bit more about not only being competent in other areas that affect sort of the, the totality of the African American or the Black Brown experience. You also must understand um, uh, that I don't want to thought. Oh no! Oh, I thought I was a trans thought. Don't want to do that. Um, I think the second thing we must understand, we must do is is Understand that is ask yourself the question is providing therapy with it, say group therapy, um, and therapy, couples therapy, um, doing therapy in an institution or that sort of thing. Ask ourselves is, is that enough for the greater body politic of, of, of my people, right? As therapists who are on the ground, working on the grassroots, work with, with our community, understanding firsthand what the issues are. The question becomes, after a while, you start to understand what the salient issues are of the black and brown communities, right? Mm-hmm. You start to understand them from a, from a very direct experiential space, right? The question becomes, do you remain just a therapist or do you wear other hats as well? 
Mm. How do you fall into the role of a social advocate? What does social justice mean in your space? Mm. How do you advocate for those other points? Is it just about the therapy or do, are you mandated to do these other things, right? Are you mandated to work on the, 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 just just mandated to work with the client who suffers from an oppressive system? Or do you, understanding that the system is oppressive, or do you put on your social advocacy hat, your social justice hat, and try to change the system? As African Americans, for example, have been historically disenfranchised, systematically redlining. Mm. Uh, uh, a different type of Jim Crow, Jim Crow, I mean, black codes. I mean, you name it, the highway system that pushed blacks into the cities and whites into the suburbs, and now you see the reversal for gentrification. Mm-hmm. We have been systematically disproportionate, marginalized throughout, particular, to focus, just to focus a little bit on, in terms of African American history, history, we have been systematically disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. When we think about, for example, the civil rights movement, um, one of the things that I want to sort of talk about in terms of the saliency, one of the salient points of the civil rights movement is the particular, the more effective civil rights leaders understood that uh, uh, people that that you can be more effective in numbers, yeah. right? Yes, you can be more effective in mass. This is something that's very uh, dear to the African American DNA. Still, so the how to protest, how to, how to advocate collectively, right? We've done this many of times through, with it, with it through uh, the Dubois the, the Burka movement, through the Martin Luther King movement, through the uh, Malcolm Little movement, through uh, 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 Marcus Garvey. We've been able to galvanize. Um, and so I think what I'm saying here is that the therapists must understand that we have to wear more than the simple hat of being a therapist. We have to we have to create a system, not a system, that's kind of revolutionary. But I, I think what I'm saying is we have to be more thoughtful about individual work and understand that, that to remove for example the stigma, then the then the, the black and brown therapists as community have to sort of work in tandem to remove that stigma. That's it. I really like that. Right? Good... Just That's... like the civil rights movement. We've done that before. We have to work collectively. That's it. Right? You know, every major movement in, in, in the late 19th century, 20th, and, and, and 20th century, the African-American movements have been successful through collective movement. That's it. And yeah. stigma is not an individual, but a collective issue. It's a it, it's it's a a general feeling that our people have about mental health. Right. And here's the irony, right? The irony is what? Who is in most need of mental health? <laughs> we are exactly. Yeah. We are. Yep. Yep. And here's the thing: we are on so many levels. And the biggest example of what I mean, the most current, the most current, like right now, example of what it means for black therapists to be more than just therapists, but to be advocates, to to be social justice advocates, to, to work collectively. The biggest example, and it all comes back to my view of existentialism in terms of those life things I talked about, but two specific major ones, life and death, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the health disparities in terms of how the COVID is affecting people of color. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. That's that's my oh. case in point. Indeed. That's my case in point. Yeah. Disproportionate. Absolutely disproportionate. Right. So so collectively we have to understand that collectively we rise and collectively we fall. That's right. Just like how COVID has taken us out wildly in certain cities and the states. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult thing um, mm-hmm. for, for, for us as people to do. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, no. How do we come together? How do we become more of an advocate and uh, support system for one another? You know, what does self-care look like in terms of taking on that, those different type of responsibilities? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that self-care in our community starts with healing first. That is our self-care. Yeah. So it's not a hashtag of living my best life or posing up in a bathtub with a glass of bubbly. No, our self-care starts with healing. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to yeah. I want to thank you so much for those great points, Andre. And I, I want to ask you uh, our last sure. question, which is which I like to call the fun question. Sure. And if you could sum up your your journey, your life journey, your your work with mental with mental health, your your therapy, everything that you've done, if you can sum it up, sum it up with one single word, what would that word be? <laughs> I, I'm I, I I'm sorry for being with the, uh, a little bit difficult. I cannot do that. No, 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 you just need one word, one word. I think I knew what the word was, but I just, one word. To sum up my, how I would describe my, my, my. uh, Your journey. So your life journey. My journey. Yes. My journey. Um, um, Becoming. Oh, oh okay. Very nice. Okay. That's a good one. That's a really, really good one. Becoming. Coming. I def- if, I, I appreciate I, that. If I may though. Yes. And this took one minute. This is what took one minute because I think um if we in now I won't be it'll be a little, um I don't think it'll be as clear. The point I was ma- I made about when you asked me about being authentic and I talked about my father and uncle's passing and what that meant to me, yeah. what I read. Right. Um, I think therapeutically and existentially, I think I want to leave you and your listeners with specifically what I learned mm, okay. about my father and uncle's passing, about life mm. and about meaning. Okay. What I found, what I realized as I went through the process of experiencing the passing of my dad through illness, and then months later watching my uncle, his brother, go through the same process because he was afflicted with the same illness, pass away 12 months later. Mm. Right? These were the two most important men in my life, um, night and day, <laughs> uh, but very much the two most important men in my life. Um, when they were dying, it was a difficult process because they were dying of cancer. <clears throat> he 
here are some of the things that I noticed in talking with my uncle. But more, this is really my father for different reasons, but it applied to both. Once they started to recognize and really start to really, really kind of accept that they were dying, yes? Um, my uncle would just shout it out and joke about it. And I'm dying. You know I'm dying, right? Um, but one thing I started to notice was a change in conversation, demeanor, and thoughtfulness. And as I talked and listened to my family members and talked to my dad and uncle right before they passed, here are the three things that stood out to me mm-hmm. more than anything else. And what I feel are the key ingredients to the most meaningful type of existence anybody can create for themselves. There is lots of insight to be gained when you are fully aware of your own mortality. Mm. And having a back-to-back experience of losing two very important special men to me um, who were painfully aware of their own mortality. What I what I gleaned was three things about life and meaning. What is meaning? Meaning is this for me in terms of life. Meaning is having purpose. Having something that you are passionate about. Something that you love to do. Gosh, I'm sure this is it's your psychology work. Mm-hmm. For me, clearly it's mine, right? Right, right, absolutely. Um, right? But but per, but purpose gives you what we call a rhythm to life. Mm. Yes. Right? And life is a rhythm. Right. It certainly is a rhythm, right? Just the way the the earth rotates around the, the uh the sun and the galaxies, it's all a rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> Um, purpose gives us dignity. Oh. Purpose gives us esteem. Purpose gives us a sense of efficacy. Mm. And I noted that when my father was dying, he talked a lot about how proud he was of how smart his children were and how smart they had turned out and how how uh, we were his best, you know, he was sorry that he wasn't always the best father, but he's so proud of how just, you know, proud I was that, you know, I was going to get my doctorate in that. that and essentially that I, we had, he could leave the earth knowing that his children had something, had a purpose. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I noticed in the conversations and the observations of my father and my uncle passed was was legacy was critically important. Legacy. Right. The question of the day for my uncle and really for my father was how will I be remembered? Ah, yes. How will I be remembered? How will I be thought of? Did I do a good job raising my children? Yes. Did I, was I as nice of a guy as I always thought I was? Was I really a jerk all those times she said I was a jerk? I probably was. 
that probably will be my legacy. But when you understand, when, you, when the doctor says there's nothing else we can do, after the fear subsides, after all these other racing thoughts and feelings uh, cease to bounce around in you like a ping pong ball, the three salient issues that come up for most people in this space is a sense of purpose, a sense of legacy. In other words, what, is, what was my passion in life and how will I be remembered? That's right. The third thing that resonated with me, and this wasn't because of direct conversation. This is what I observed through my father's conversations with my mom, who my dad wasn't a very good husband. Right, okay. <laughs> he, was a, he was a quasi good uh, father, quasi. Okay. <laughs> um, but he did, my, he, did, he did my mom wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. But my mom's always been the bigger heart bigger person so she was there day in and day out in his last uh, months mm, okay. particularly in the last two weeks when he was confined to the hospital where he knew we all knew he was not leaving from that hospital right. but she was there at his bedside and as I observed them just talking about whatever all the memories of the hurt and the arguments and the pain that they inflict, that he inflicted on her and the stress and the press that she went through because of him. And yet I saw them there in his last days, them talking like they had just met. Wow. And then I finally overheard him say, will you forgive me for all that I've done to you? Oh. I'm very sorry. Wow. Oh, man. And so the last piece I'll leave you with in terms of what it means to have meaning in your life. What does meaning mean? It means three things. It means to have purpose, passion. That's, it means to have legacy, established legacy. How would you like to be remembered? And finally, the courage for forgiveness. Mm. And in three ways, you think about the people who you've hurt, that you quite you should get their forgiveness from. You think about the people you've hurt, the people you should seek forgiveness from, mm-hmm. the people you should get forgiveness to. Yes. And finally, forgiving yourself for things you thought you'd done to yourself. That's it. That's it. Wow. And the key to all of that is to say this. Those three Themes of life create meaning. And what I mean by that is this. When my uncle and father were dying, it seemed in their final days, nothing else mattered but those three things. So what he taught me was that those are perhaps the three most important things when you don't realize you're going to die. Right. When you have no sense of mortality, when you feel like you can conquer the world, the three things that bring real meaning to people in existence, in life, when when life is full of vitality and vivaciousness, to not waste that, you need to be able to focus on three things. Because when you realize you're going to die, these are the only three things that seem to matter. Purpose, legacy, and forgiveness. Mm. I love that. Andre. 
legacy and forgiveness. forgiveness. Yes. And I am writing yeah. this down in my notes. <laughs> this is how powerful this is. No, oh my seriously, goodness. I'm writing this down. Andre, I'm going to tell you this yeah. from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate, and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.